Open up to Exodus chapter 19 and 20. The internet is a wonderful thing. I say that with some qualified, uh, uh, a, 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 large, <laughs> a large notion of qualification. Mostly, the internet is a wonderful thing. I have seen <coughs> people bake a cake with a V8 engine. I've seen somebody drive through Melbourne with a set of pliers instead of a steering wheel. I have seen all sorts of amazing things on the internet. I've seen a piano with wheels used as a go-kart. Uh, the internet is a wonderful thing. It shows us all of these tremendous and, and, and amazing ideas that people have. But of course, while wonderful, those things that I love to watch on a, on a Saturday morning, sitting in my couch, uh, these wonderful videos, they, they, they have something in common. That What is striking about them is that they're fairly useless. Because the thing being utilized, whether the pliers or the piano or the, or the whatever it may be, it's not being used according to its intended purpose. And that is always dangerous. I'm telling you, the guy who chopped down trees in his backyard with an AK-47, it was cool to watch. There was injuries. Uh, the guy who rode his piano down the hill, it was cool to watch. There were injuries. Things are, are best utilized when utilized according to their purpose. And so it is with the law of God. Paul the Apostle in 1 Timothy 1 says, the law is good. It's a good law when one uses it lawfully. In other words, the law, though a, though a tremendous ruling stick, can be used as a rod against people, can be used as a, as a, as a prop in, a, in an inappropriate way. The law can be manipulated and twisted, and so we need to make sure we have a right understanding of the law of God as we come as God's people to obey his law in our life. So in Exodus 19, we're not going to read uh, uh, all of Exodus 19 or all of Exodus 20. We have done so for 19 in previous weeks, and we will get into the depths of Exodus 20 over the next 10 weeks doing the Ten Commandments. But I want to read for us uh, verse 16 from chapter 19 and following, and then we'll go over to the end. Uh, the, a section of chapter 20. Chapter 19, verse 16. Remember, the people are standing at the bottom of the Mount of Sinai in the wilderness to hear from God. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. In chapter 20, 1 through uh, 17, we see God speak loudly in a thundering voice the Ten Commandments to all of his people. Look at verse 18 of chapter 20. Now, when all the people saw the thunder, it's got to be pretty intense thunder when you see thunder. They're seeing noises right now. This is a pretty intense experience. They saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. 
And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Wouldn't the evangelical church do well to just imbibe that spirit in us a little bit more? God is a consuming, fearful fire. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. But the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. May God bless his own word in our midst this morning. Our study of the law over the last few weeks has brought us to a question where we ask, what is the purpose of the moral law of God? And I'm using that language, uh, 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 piggybacking off what we studied last week, that, that in the Old Testament law, given at Sinai and until the end of Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament law, there, was, there is what we call a threefold division of the law. That is that there were different uh, sections and categories of law, and not all of them apply in the same way. So that we have uh, the ceremonial law, which was about how the Israelites were to worship in the tabernacle and temple through sacrifices and clothing. That's how they were instructed to worship until Jesus came. Then we saw the judicial law. That was how the nation was to act as a nation. Their, their laws, their criminal code, their punishments. And that also expired at the death and resurrection of Jesus. No longer uh, to be carried out universally by God's people. However, the moral law of God is what is really the foundation to every law of God. And it's not, not designed for a certain time or a certain people or a certain place. It's designed and its truth applies to all people in all times in all places. And we see the moral law of God as foundational to all of morality in the scripture. That doesn't change. The Ten Commandments are perpetually binding on all people. But we're asking today, that moral law then, let's focus in on the Ten Commandments, which we're going to be studying over the next ten weeks. One command a week, in case your math's not, not catching up on an early Sunday morning. As, as people relating to this moral law then, we say, okay, so, so the Ten Commandments, they apply to us. What is the purpose of it? How should we relate to it? And theologians have given what, is, what has been called the three purposes of the law of God. Now, I know I'm, I'm risking confusing us all because last week we had the threefold division of God's law and now we're taking the moral law and saying, the theologians say that it has three distinct purposes. Theologians don't care how confusing they are. Half their writing's in Latin. They're nerds. But my job is to try and apply to us this understanding of the law of God so that we don't become legalists, so that we don't become antinomians and hate God's law, but we become a law-loving, holy people of God. So, so the moral law, the Ten Commandments, it has three purposes in the life of humanity. I'm, I'm going to use different items to, to distinguish them and to, to allegorize them. We have, number one, it is a rod. It is a rod. Secondly, it is a mirror. And thirdly, it is a lamp. The, the theologians say that the first purpose of God's law to humanity is like a rod to be known by the people that he has created, all humans. And in, in other words, the law of God is given to just direct human society 
so that there is a constant conscience that is all, uh, uh, known by all of us. We know the laws of God. So, so in other words, you don't have to be saved. It doesn't have to be a quote-unquote Christian nation. It doesn't have to be any of those things. But the law of God is given to the world so that as it is known, people in general have in their minds, God cares about sin. This is one of those sins. I should not do it. So that societies as a whole don't come to a point where they celebrate and march and promote and, 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 and encourage people to do that which God hates. Now, now where... Let me, a quiz for us all. Are we at a place in our society where the law of God is seen as a rod and keeping us all on the straight and narrow? <laughs> we, are, we are long gone from Christendom right now. And, and we're at a point where our society, sadly, is, is a society with a seared conscience or, or just no conscience at all. That conscience has been lit up and smoked for fun. That conscience is gone. As far as an entire society goes, we don't have the, the cultural, normal mores where certain sins are taboo and we just don't do them. We just don't suggest them and promote them. And even if people have secret sins, they're not things that are culturally celebrated. We've, we have transgressed the first purpose of God's law to mankind. We have, we have walked far away from his moral commandments. But that is not all. There is a, that is what is the idea of the rod that God controls to some degree the conscience of society through the knowledge of his law. But secondly, the law of God is a mirror. It's a mirror. In other words, we come up to the law of God as individuals, as human beings of any generation, we come up to the law of God and we hear it read to us or we read it ourselves and what it is like is like the lights being turned on and spotlights directly on us and we see ourselves in the law as a mirror and it exposes to us all of our zits, pimples, scars, deformities and uncleanliness. So that the law becomes to us a revealer of the fact that you can't obey it you can't be good enough to satisfy it. You will never make the standards of God's law. And you better quickly go run and find somebody who can, who can be your substitute to be a source of salvation into eternal life. The law is a mirror to us. This is the second purpose of the law of God, is that it condemns us, convicts us, insults us, leaves us in the ground and says, run to Jesus Christ. I can't help you. That's the point of the mirror. Now, how foolish it would then be, theologians like to say, that how foolish would it be that as we look into the law of God and we realize that as every line is read, we are guilty of it. How foolish it would then be to try and take the mirror and start rubbing ourselves to try and clean off the oil and the muck and the grime. That's legalism. That's every other religion than grace-based Christological Christianity. That's every religion. Here's the law. You can't meet it. Try and use that law to meet the law. Try, try and do more things in order to look good before the law. Try and clean yourself with a shiny mirror. Can't be done. It cannot be done. So the law's faithful job that is given to it by God is to point people towards Jesus for salvation. And then thirdly, the purpose of the law, the third purpose of the law is to guide the Christian life. And in this sense... We call it a lamp. It's the rod for society. It's a mirror to individuals. And it's a lamp 
for the Christian life. This is the third use of the law of God, is that once we are saved, the law then becomes to us a beacon of direction and wisdom and commandments so that it lights our way and we know what God's will for us is. It is a rod, it is a mirror, and it is a lamp. So, we can then go, after understanding the three purposes of the moral law of God, we can then ask the question, what is it for you? Individually, what is the law to you? For all of us, it is God's standard for living, and it is God's commandment binding to us. That is, that is true, but on this second purpose of the law, or the third purpose, where do you stand? Do you stand condemned under the law? Or as a saved Christian, born again by the Spirit of God, do you stand before the law and it is your help, it is your guide, and it is your lamp? Or I can ask this. Instead of asking, what's your relationship to the law of God? I could rather reword it and say, on what basis do you relate to God? Your relationship with God determines your relationship to the law. We could say it around the other way as well. Your relationship to the law determines your relationship with God, but that would be to put the law first. Let's put God and his gracious relationship with us first. How you relate to God determines whether or not the law condemns you or the gospel saves you. In Reformed theology, since the Protestant Reformation, this has been known as the law-gospel distinction. This is one of the most important distinctions that every Christian, whether you're a master's in divinity theologian or an academic or just a, you've been a Christian for four days, you need to know the distinction between law and gospel because they are divergent, different bridges to lead to God. Imagine yourself, as, the, as many evangelists will paint the picture of, of hu fallen humanity being on one side of a great, enormous, deep, fiery chasm. And God and heaven and perfection, bliss and paradise is on the other side of that chasm. And there are two bridges that lead us over to God. And this first one is called law. The bridge of law. It is made up of commandments, laws, demands, and obedience allows you to pass each of those checkpoints. You read checkpoint number one, and it's the first commandment. And only according to your obedience of that may you progress further towards God and eternal life. And its standards are perfection. So according to your perfect obedience to God's commandments, the law allows you to access and approach God in eternal life. Now, the reality is that the, the, the Old Testament speaks of this in a way that says, if you obey, you shall live. This echoes Eden, doesn't it? If you disobey, then you shall surely die. That's how to relate to God on the basis of law. Perfect obedience gets you closer to him. Thus, by your obedience, you shall Lives. But anybody awakened to the reality of the Bible knows that that is an impossible way to reach God. That is a decommissioned bridge. It has enormous signs up saying, do not walk on this bridge. It will be to your peril. Ever since Adam's first fall in the garden, 
Every single one of us have not had the faculties or the ability to meet a single law of God and be able to pass that checkpoint to perfection. Not a single one of us. And therefore, this this way of relating to God on the basis of what I do by his commandments, this bridge of law is blocked off. It is impossible to please God by living according to the law. At every command, we find a checkpoint that we cannot pass. Galatians 3 verse 10 condemns anybody who tries to use the law as a way to approach God. Galatians 3 verse 10, Paul says, Everybody who relies on the works of the law are under a curse. For the law says, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. In other words, you try and walk along the path of law to approach God, you will be under a curse of condemnation because the law says you must obey everything. As soon as you start trying to relate to God on the basis of what you do, you better be sure that you are perfectly unblemished, undefiled, absolutely and perfectly morally upstanding, never failing a single command. This this isn't how our generation or humankind naturally wants to think of God. No one's perfect, we'll say. That's the tenet of, of humanity. Hey, hey, whoa, don't judge. Nobody's perfect. What's the second thing we believe? God's kind. God's forgiving. God's nice. He knows we're not perfect and, and he'll let me in. He'll, he'll be gracious. He'll be kind and, and he'll usher me along even though I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm good. We have this distinction in our thinking. I may not be perfect, but I'm good enough. And God's perfect law doesn't make that distinction. If you are not perfect, you cannot be good enough. Everyone, therefore, except a perfect person, you're not it. Just going to pop that bubble right out, of, right out of the gate. If you're not a perfect person, you cannot walk the law and relate to God and receive anything other than cursing. However, there is a second bridge that goes from fallen man over the chasm over to God, and it is the bridge that we call gospel. Now, don't hear me saying there's the Old Testament way of reaching God and then the New Testament, not not the division we're making. We're saying there is gospel in the Old Testament, there is law in the New Testament, but there is different ways or the whole Bible can be divided up into law and gospel. And gospel leads us to God and it is built out of good news. This bridge that leads us to God is made out of promises And every checkpoint you get to, you are not asked, what have you done? You are told what Jesus has done. On the path to God, through the gospel, is a bridge that tells us every step we take that Jesus has done everything needed for you. Jesus has paid you. They they take your passport. They look you up in the system and say, yes, Jesus has paid for you. This is the gospel bridge and you are welcome to keep going. All of your payments have been made. All of your failings have have been paid for. Your future has been purchased. Your eternal life has been sealed in the blood of Jesus. You may pass. That is the gospel bridge to Jesus Christ. If you believe, the gospel says, if you believe, You shall live. The law says if you obey, you get an equal amount of life. 
that is an impossible road to live by, and therefore God has built the second bridge through his son Jesus Christ that says, if you believe my promise, if you believe what Jesus has done, then you shall live. Faith in the New Testament is opposed to works as far as getting to God matters. Faith is not a work. Faith is not an an act of obedience by which we do something that God says. That's great. Look at you having that faith. Rather, faith is a passive, empty hand that simply gets to a checkpoint. They say, Jesus died for you. The door's open and you say, okay, that's great. That's good. I'm going to go and step through and you are perfectly welcome and even commanded to do so. Romans 3 verse 22 says this, no, Romans 3 verse 20 says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, by the law, we become conscious of our sin. Did you know that? Do you know that that's a part of the purpose of the law? God gave the law to humankind because we thought we were pretty good. These people, these people need a mirror. They keep rocking up under my front lawn looking like trash. They keep thinking they can approach me. A little goat sacrifice, a little bit of pig's blood, a little little human sacrifice, whatever these, these humans keep thinking they can do to please me, they need a mirror. And that is why the scene at Sinai of God thundering in fire and then thundering out his law leaves the Israelite people shaking and trembling and pleading that God not speak to them anymore. They were pretty excited to hear from God until they saw themselves in the mirror of God's law. And then they said, no more. Moses, you come and whisper to us very kindly and gently like my therapist. I don't want to hear that noise anymore. The law makes us tremble because the law shows us our sin. And the law condemns us, Romans 3.20 says. But Romans 3 verse 22 says... But now righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So so the law says this whole bridge has been commanding you at every checkpoint. Have you done? Have you done? Were you perfect? Were you good? But, But that is an impossible way, an inaccessible way to get righteousness. And therefore, at the very open door of the bridge of gospel, God says, I'm giving you righteousness. What the law demanded, I'm giving to you freely if you believe. Not if you do, not if you turn up to church, not if you become a great giver, not if you do certain acts. And maybe a 12%, 14% law obedience, nothing. The guilty, vile, blemished sinner can walk to God on the bridge of gospel because we are given the righteousness that satisfies God. The gospel is the gift of righteousness to all who believe. And then we ask, Paul says in verse 27, well, then where's the boasting? You think that's written for somebody else, right? Other people, the proud, the legalists, the Pharisees, the Jews, they're they're a boasting bunch, not I. Not I. I'm far more humble than them, we boast. We're all naturally inclined to ask, hang on, this whole, I'm walking along the gospel, God's giving salvation, at what point do I get my applause? Where's my boasting? Where's my certificate? I'd like to pin this up on my, on my library. Where, where do I get praised? Paul says, where is boasting? It is excluded. 
It is slaughtered at the first door of the gospel bridge. There is no boasting here. There is no boasting because what law? The law that requires my works? No, no, no. Your boasting is excluded because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. There's no, there's no boasting. You, you have nothing to worry about if your past is filled with sin because Jesus does it all. But that means also you have nothing to boast about because your only contribution was what built that chasm in the first place. We have nothing to boast of because it is a pure and free gift. Therefore, the blessing, the path to God, is now by faith in Jesus. Believing the promises of God about Jesus Christ, that is called the gospel. John Grace. John Gresham Machen was a theologian in the 20th century and he spent his life debating and fighting liberals who were trying to change the very foundations of the gospel. And by doing so, they were undermining the good news of God towards mankind. And he wrote this book and, and in it he has this imagined dialogue conversation between the law of God and a sinner. I want you, you to imagine, your, not imagine yourself, you're a sinner, but put yourself in the shoes or in the seat or in the, in the conversation of the part of the sinner. Machen says this, We may imagine a dialogue between the law of God and a sinful man. Man, says the law of God, have you obeyed my commands? No, says the sinner, I have transgressed them in thought, word, and deed. Well then, Sinner, says the law, have you paid the penalty which I have pronounced upon those who have thus disobeyed? Have you died in the sense that I meant when I said, the soul that sins shall die? Yes, says the sinner, I have died. That penalty that you pronounced upon my sin has been paid. What do you mean, says the law? By saying that you have died, you do not look as though you have died. You look as though you are very much alive. Yes, says the sinner, I have died. I died there on the cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. For Jesus there died as my representative and my substitute. I died there so far as the penalty of the law was concerned. You say, says the law, that Christ is your representative and substitute? Then I have indeed no further penalty claim against you. The curse which I pronounced against your sin has been indeed paid in full. My threatenings are very terrible, but I have nothing to say against those who are in Christ as a refuge. I have nothing to say against those for whom Christ died. What a beautiful and amazing, soul-wrenching, glorious dialogue we see there. Where do you stand? Are you relating to God on the basis of law, according to what you have done, or according to what Jesus has done, which you've received by faith? Now, now I know you might think I'm saying, do you call yourself a Christian, or do you call yourself a pagan, or an unbeliever, or an occultist? Or I'm not asking, do you call yourself a Christian or a non-Christian? I'm asking the deeper question, how do you actually, functionally relate 
to God. Because some of you have thought, like the Galatians, that you can start by faith. Your, your first day as a Christian, you can sing Amazing Grace, my past is forgiven, and you switch gear into heresy and start thinking that the way you keep God's love The way you keep your inheritance in heaven, the way you make sure he doesn't kick you out of the family is by obeying and staying up to date with all of his laws and commandments and repentance and confessions and givings. And that is a gospel. That's a gospel law mix which finds you down at the bottom of, of hell as well. That, there's, that while there is, there is God-given law and there is God-given gospel, mankind and all kinds of preachers and, and, and legalists have tried to build their own bridge and say, you start with gospel, then transition to law. And every one of them finds themselves in the pit of hell. Christian, don't you know, have you not realized that when God pronounced you righteous in Christ, it was in no sense dependent on your future obedience at all. You want me to say a little bit? Because that, that, would, that would keep you obeying. No, not at all. There is nothing that you do which affects in the slightest your right standing before God and the fact that he will welcome you with wide open arms the day that you die. Nothing. Martin Luther was preaching on this. The reality of law and gospel and the distinction between law and gospel and how we're condemned by law and then on the basis of Romans 3 verse 27, there is nothing of our doings, there is no works of the law that do anything by way of justifying us, that we are saved by faith apart from works of the law. Your obedience doesn't matter in getting saved. And somebody said at the back of his class, he says, Professor Luther, but that means that then after I'm saved... I can do whatever I want to do. And Luther took off his glasses and said, Ja, he's German. Yes, but what do you want to do? That's the question for the Christian. It is not, you're not as holy as you should be. Go and walk the law bridge a little more. Get holy, get washed up, then try gospel again. Rather, it is always and ever the free gift of righteousness in our account by believing in Jesus who lived perfectly instead of us, who walked the law bridge for us and then came back through hell, came onto our side and built the bridge to the Lord God. It is always good news, forgiveness, grace and blessing to those who do not deserve it. But one of God's blessings in the gospel is a changed heart and the law of God as a lamp to us that does not threaten us anymore. The law of God has no teeth to the Christian by which it can bite or inject venom or hurt us. Rather, the law of God always prods us, shoves us sometimes back towards Christ-likeness and, and, and obedience to Jesus. The law is a gift. That is the third use of the law. But the primary point of the law is to point you to Jesus and beg and command and scream that you go and walk the gospel bridge. Spurgeon was preaching the gospel one day as he was always uh, want to do on, in the uh, uh, 1800s in London. And, and he quoted a, a, a man, John Berridge, who had written a poem. And there's a stanza in that poem that says this. John Berridge is writing about his relationship with the law and gospel. Run, John, and work, the law commands. Yet, 
gives me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gifts me wings. This is what the gospel does. It says to you, have a righteousness that God can be satisfied with. It says to you, have a, have a penalty paid for you. It's in Jesus. All you need to do is have faith. And then in that message is embedded power so that the people of God, who are, who, or the, the chosen of God, I should say, the, the unsaved sinner sitting in their seat, they hear the news of the gospel. And the gospel is not merely a bridge before them that they need to walk on. Rather, while they are still dead in their grave, God lifts you up and throws you along the bridge and flies you and carries you along the gospel. It, it gives us faith. It empowers in us a believing the gospel message is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel is a powerful message from God. And then we ask, okay, here's, here's my, as the, as the, the old man in Luther's uh, lecture asked, okay, we, we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ's finished work, nothing of my own, what then is my relationship to the law? We've answered it in part. It becomes to us a lamp, not a consuming fire. What is my relationship to the moral law of God and the Ten Commandments, you might ask today? As we, as we go through and we study them over the next ten weeks, what is my relationship as a Christian Receiving the, faith, receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ who fulfilled this law for me by faith alone, I've received that. What is my relationship to the law? First of all, you are saved from the tyranny, the curse, and the condemnation of the law. In other words, theologians will say, you are saved from the law as a covenant basis for relating to God. The law is no longer the way you relate to God. It's tyranny, condemnation, and curse is taken away by Jesus Christ on the cross. Secondly, you are saved to the freedom of obeying God's law. You are not saved from God's law. You are saved from God's law as a way of relating to God. You are saved from the tyranny of God's law. You are saved from the condemnation of God's law and the curse of God's law, but you're not saved from God's law because that would be to saved, be saved away from God. The, the law is in the heart of God. If we're going to God, we better get ready for some law. We are saved from the condemnation of the law. We are not saved from the obligation to obey the law. Rather, we are saved to the freedom, the joyful freedom to be able to obey God's law. Don't you see this in the whole dynamic of the Israelite exodus story? They came out of slavery. They came out of having to obey a, a cruel, tyrannical master. And what did God do? Did he kick them free into the wilderness and said, have fun, do as you please? No. He brought them out of slavery to the devil, to slavery to himself, which is a joy and a blessing. They were saved to serve God not being saved from serving God. This is the third use of the law in the Christian's life. Listen to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. I do invite you to turn there. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 to 4. Get ready for some good news. If you wear hearing aids, turn them down right now. Romans 8, verse 1 through 3. 
we'll start with. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, we will summarize that as the gospel, the law of spirit and life, the gospel, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, do you see that? It's not weakened by its own standards, it's a perfect law. We were weakened. It couldn't save us because we were weak and failing. God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. By sending his own son, his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Law, as a way of relating to God, was impossible because of our sinful flesh. So God gave his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, but not sinful, so that he could be for sin in the place of sin, condemned in his flesh, in our place. The law, its tyranny, its curse and condemnation is gone for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then verse 4. In Order that. Wow. I, I want to finish at the end of verse 3, sing a big hallelujah, amen, and go home. But Paul's, Paul's taken up momentum. He, he's in full swing now at the fastest pace he can be, and now he's going uphill again. And where is he leading us with this gospel momentum? He's leading us into this statement. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Don't you see that one of the miraculous, amazing, gracious things that God does in you, in his saving you, is that he takes the law from the stone, he takes the law from your public consciousness, he takes the law from your conscience and plugs it and writes it and engraves it into your heart. So that Jesus fulfills the curse, Jesus pays the penalty, Jesus fulfills the requirements and saves me so that now we may live righteously according to God's law for his glory. Verse 31 in Romans chapter 3. Verse 31. Do we then... Oh, sorry, that's a different chapter, so I'll give you some time. Romans 3, verse 31. 3, verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Wow, the Christian who says, I will not obey the law to be saved. The Christian who says to the devil and his own conscience and, and the legalist and the Pharisee who says, you ought to do more or how could God accept you? We say, no, I reject the law, its condemnation, its curses, its tyranny and its demands to be saved because it is my friend over here as a person in Jesus. This law helps me be like my savior. This law is a gift to me. I'm the one. Isn't that amazing? The grace-saved Christian through faith in Jesus is the only one who actually upholds the law in every sense. 
Because we fulfill the first purpose of the law. It's a consciousness to us. It's a conscience to us. We fulfill the second purpose of the law because we obeyed it and we went to Jesus for salvation. And we fulfill the third purpose of the law by then living obediently to it by the Spirit's help and confessing to the Lord Jesus Christ in all of our shortcomings. It's the legalist. It's the non-Christian who is breaking the law. Who says that you need to do it in order to be made right with God. It might sound noble to you. That is blasphemy. I need need to do the law in order to uphold the law. That's blasphemy. You're, You're in fact breaking the law because it's telling you in its second purpose, run to Jesus. If you have not received Jesus by faith, this is for all of you who are non-Christians, if you have not rested in that good news promise of God, if you have not received salvation by faith, realizing Jesus lived my life instead of me, he died my my death instead of me, he's now living in heaven welcoming me, if you have not rested in him and in that promise by faith, then you still stand under the condemnation of God because you are trying to relate to God on the broken, rickety bridge of your own deeds, and it will kill you. Leap to the other bridge, or just let yourself fall. Jesus will catch you. Rest in the arms of Jesus. There was, there was an apprentice, Spurgeon, Spurgeon's uh, 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 days in London uh, uh, birthed this story. There was a young man by the name of Harry, And his family lived in the outer parts of England. And his father sent him into London to do a silversmith's trade. He was apprenticing with a silversmith. And Harry's father received word one day that he had robbed his silversmith mentor, his his master. He'd robbed him of silver. He had sold it. And he was doing this for, for, for quite a few weeks. The father received news of this. He traveled to London as soon as he could to make sense of it all and found that his son was in fact a confessed thief. He apologized. He made right on all of the losses and he was taking his son back to their small town. As they're about to get to the highway, find a coach and start riding, his son darts off, teenage boy, darts off down a side alley and sprints down, sprints away. The father runs, the father looks, the father searches, the police can't find him and he goes home a broken father, empty-handed to his wife. And for years, this family has a prodigal son. Their son is gone. Not only is he run from the Christian profession, of course, but, but he is not even in their own house. And he's out there doing, heaven knows what in London, a thief. One day, instead of going to church in the evening, they'd been to church in the morning, and then instead of going, this is years later, instead of going to church in the evening, they stayed home, this mother and father of Harry, and they prayed And they pleaded that God would save their son and bring him back home. They received a letter the next day from the, uh, sorry, a visit from their daughter who had said that she was impulsed to do the same thing a few towns over that very same day. And that day in London, Harry had been had been in a little gang of thieves, and they were on their way to one of the uh, uh, one of the banks that was closed on a Sunday in order to go round the back alley and, and take a bunch of gold. And, and as they were going, they saw this enormous, enormous building in one of the, the, the public gardens. And there were all of these, these people jammed into it. And they could hear noises coming from inside. And little did they know, that was the, the preaching palace of the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. 
And they said, go up and see if there's <coughs> what the time is. Go into the building. They'll have a clock, see what the time is. And so he climbs on the outer part of the building, and he, he sneaks his head into the window, and he can't see a clock. And so he climbs in, and he, he inches in the crowded building over towards where, on the gallery where he could see the clock, and Spurgeon, in a moment, points at him. And Spurgeon's text that day was the thief dying next to Jesus who was saved in the 11th hour. Having done nothing good, he was saved by merely believing in Jesus' death in his place. Merely believing in who Jesus was. And Jesus says, you, with no good deeds of your own, you will be in paradise today. And Spurgeon points to this young man who's standing on the gallery and says, thieves can be saved. In a moment, that man was converted. His his heart broke, he started weeping, he ran home away from his friends, he spent the night on his knees pleading to God, and the, the thing that struck him the most was that in being struck by God through the words of Spurgeon, he was given nothing to do. He was not told how he can better his life. He was not told how to stop being a thief and start being a moral person. He was merely told that today, like the thief on the cross next to Jesus, you can be saved and immediately implanted into the home, family, and love of God through Jesus. That is the power of Jesus. It requires nothing of you. Two weeks later, he arrived on his home, doorstep, knocked door flung open, mother and father embraced him in tears, and he lived with them until their old age. Friends, if you're outside of Jesus Christ, come home. There is nothing for you to do. There is nothing for you to accomplish or achieve before God. Rest in Jesus' finished work. Let's pray. Father God, there is such glory in the gospel that we Not only could we, but we will spend our whole lives praising you. We will spend our whole lives learning more about the gospel, finding more more, more, more gold in the good news that is written here in your Bible. We will continue to preach it, continue to reflect on it, continue to live in light of it in order to fulfill your commands and glorify you. And in eternity, we we will continue to sing and have our minds expanded perfectly to understand more of the riches that is in Christ Jesus, but never in, in, the, in the end of millions of millions of years, at the end of all eternity, we will not yet have even scratched the surface of the glory of the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ towards sinners who believe. It is, it is rich, it is bottomless with grace from heaven towards us who are so undeserving. Lord God, I ask that you forgive us and give us, give us contrition and repentance forever thinking we are better than others, forever approaching you and worshiping you or relating to you on the basis of what we have done. Father God, we we repent of that and ask that you give our hearts a desperate hunger to only ever lean on what Jesus has done. Let us only ever, as Christians, relate to you functionally through through the bridge of the gospel. Only ever relate to you on the basis of Jesus Christ. Only ever relate to you by faith and not obedience. But God, being saved people, please make us an obedient church. Make us love your law, obey your law, fulfill the righteous requirements of your law as we put our minds according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. Lord God, there are still some under the condemnation of the law. And Romans 8 verse 1 is reversed for them. 
There is only condemnation for those who are outside of Christ Jesus. For the law of sin and death is doing its work against them. Father God, we pray that you would give them a heart of faith to rest in Jesus and reject all of their own works. Then there will be no condemnation for them because they will be in Christ Jesus. Glorify your son. We thank you for your word. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.